Shadow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. Doctor No, the first big screen outing for Ian Fleming's James Bond. It's 1962 and the movie would start to lay out a successful formula for most of the other movies that would follow in the series. Of course, when we speak about Doctor No, most of us will remember Bond's introduction at the casino. Ursula Andress as Honey Rider emerging from the sea in that bikini, or the scene where the spider crawls up Sean Connery's arm. But what about this scene? And in particular, one specific moment. Forgive my not shaking hands, it becomes a bit awkward with these, a misfortune. You were admiring my aquarium. Yes. It's quite impressive. A unique feat of engineering, if I may say so, I designed it myself. The glass is convex, ten inches thick, which accounts for the magnifying effect. Minnows pretending they're whales, just like you on this island, Dr. No. It depends, Mr. Bond, on which side the glass you are. James Bond and Honey Ryder have just met the evil Dr. No in his underground lair. After crushing an ornament with his metal hand and telling the pair of spectres dastardly plan to hold the world to ransom, they're led away. As they walk up a small set of steps, Bond stops, notices an oil painting to his left. The painting was a portrait of Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington, painted by Francisco de Goya and only several months before the release of Dr. No, it had been hanging on display in London's National Gallery. When it was stolen, however, one early August morning, it made national and international headlines. The story would develop with an unlikely villain who, like Dr. No, would hold the British government to ransom. A story that would span many decades and involve a high-profile court case, the introduction of a new criminal offence and the British TV licence. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the theft of the Duke of Wellington. I have a dream. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. 
they think it's all over. It is now. It's four. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. London art galleries were no strangers to art thieves, and the theft of the Duke was certainly not the first time such a thing had happened. There was the robbery in 1876 of a Gainsborough by a man who had inspired the creation of Moriarty in Sherlock Holmes. There were four thefts of the same Rembrandt from Dulwich Picture Gallery, and the taking of a Bertha Morisot from the Tate by two students who arranged for a press photographer to capture the event. And remarkably, the date of this particular theft, the 21st of August 1961, was actually quite fitting. It marked the 50th anniversary of the theft of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre in Paris. But nothing had ever been stolen from the National Gallery in London. Until now. But first, let's go back about 150 years before this to where our story really starts. In 1812, following his entry into Madrid in the course of the Peninsular War, the victorious Duke of Wellington sat for a portrait by Francisco Goya. To those who know about these things, they say that it is an all-pervading characterisation. The heat of Spain and the weariness of battle are suggested in a face that appears slightly flushed, but also commanding. Although Wellington wears his full-dress uniform and regalia, Art critics have remarked that there is a sense of his private character having been, almost despite himself, revealed. Goya completed the portrait over the course of nearly two years and it remained in the property of the family of the Duke of Leeds for many years after. The portrait was put up for auction at Sotheby's in 1961 where it was bought by an American art collector, Charles Reitzman, who planned to take the painting to the US. Reitzman paid £140,000 for the Duke, the equivalent of a staggering £1.2 today. There was a public outcry. How could the government permit a national treasure to be lost across the Atlantic? Reitzman agreed to sell it to the National Gallery if funds could be found to match the price that he had paid, and so the government and the Wolfson Foundation clubbed together and raised the necessary amount. That, as it would pan out, was the easy part, keeping the portrait in the country. The hard part would be keeping it in the National Gallery. The portrait of the Duke of Wellington was hung in the gallery on the 3rd of August 1961, and by the 21st of August, it was gone. In the immediate aftermath of the painting's disappearance, there were no clues as to its whereabouts, and speechless security guards were left scratching their heads in complete bewilderment as to how the object could disappear right under their very noses. Now here's the twist. 
What unfolded that night, and what was believed to be the official explanation as to the painting's disappearance, the arrest of the so-called perpetrator and the subsequent trial, was in fact a complete load of rubbish. Here's the original official description of what was generally thought to have happened that night in August 1961. Just before dawn on Monday the 21st of August 1961, the thief stood on top of a parking meter in order to get over the back wall of the National Gallery. There was extensive renovation work going on throughout certain parts of the building and making use of a six-foot ladder left by construction workers, he climbed through the unlocked window of the gents' toilet in order to gain access to the gallery's main building. The painting was positioned on an easel in a roped-off enclosure at the top of the stairs. Creeping slowly and silently through the dimly lit corridors, the thief made his way towards the painting. Keeping a watchful eye out for the security, he approached the portrait, took hold of it and carried it back to the toilet. Climbing back out of the window and down the ladder, he retraced his steps to the back wall by St Martin Street. He climbed over the wall and silently made his escape through the back streets of London's West End. The thief was certainly no raffles, and in fact he would remark later that he was so unprepared as to the final details of how he would commit the theft, that if he hadn't carried a jemmy, and if the toilet window had been shut, he would have had to have given up there and then. The absence of the Duke was first spotted by two patrolling security guards. Initially, each of them assumed that the painting had been removed by a member of the gallery staff and that they had failed to put up a notice to this effect. Gallery policy at the time was to place a notice referred to by the warders as a tag or a tablet in the place of a work of art removed by conservation staff in order to inform the security and others of its whereabouts. This procedure, unfortunately, was not always followed through and as a result, the Walders did not immediately assume the worst in the Duke's unplanned absence. By 8am, however, it was eventually realised that the Duke had not been removed by gallery staff, and he had indeed disappeared. A search was quickly organised at the Conservation and Photographic Studios before the police were called an hour and a half later. Almost 11 hours since the discovery that the painting had vanished. A painting which incidentally had yet to be insured. Over the next few days the entire building was searched, staff were all questioned, but it soon became clear, thanks to samples of dirt found on the windowsill, that the Duke had made his escape through the toilet window. A government inquiry led by Lord Bridges was swiftly set up, concluding that the thief had most likely been a visitor to the gallery the day before and had left the toilet window unlatched. The director of the gallery, Philip Hendy, offered his resignation, but the trustees led by Lord Robbins refused to accept it. But almost immediately following the inquiry, a number of improvements to the security on the site were introduced, including a night patrol with a dog. There was also the secondment of a senior police officer as security advisor for all of the national collections, a post which has evolved into the role of national security advisor. And all the time throughout the aftermath of the robbery, it was assumed by everyone that this was the work of a master criminal. 
That was until the ransom notes started to arrive. On the 26th of September 1961, a reward was offered for the safe return of the painting. Widely publicised across the media, it offered a grand sum of £5,000. Just a week before this, however, the Reuters news agency had received the first in a series of anonymous ransom letters, generally referred to as the Com Letters, for that was how each was headed. The first bore the London postmark SW1. Inside the envelope, a letter revealing details about the painting that could only have been known to the thief. Details such as marks and distinguishing features on the back of the portrait. Also inside, a demand. A demand for £140,000. The same amount as the sum paid for the portrait itself. The note inside read as follows. The picture is not and will not be for sale. It is for ransom. £140,000 to be given to a charity. If a fund is started, it should be quickly made up, and on the promise of a free pardon for the culprits, the picture will be handed back. None of the group concerned in this escapade have any criminal convictions. All good people are urged to help this affair to a speedy conclusion. The National Gallery remained unmoved, despite the offer of free pennyworth of old Spanish firewood in exchange for £140,000 of human happiness. And as if that were not bizarre enough, the thief went on to say that the £140,000 be used to fund free TV licences for the elderly, something that wouldn't be introduced by the British government until several decades later. And in the words of the letter, the act is an attempt to pick the pockets of those who love art more than charity. My sole object in all this was to set up a charity to buy television licences for old and poor people who seem to be neglected in an affluent society. And still, the police were no closer to finding whoever was responsible. Months went by, but the theft remained in the public's attention thanks to continual reports and speculation in the national press. In February 1962, six months after the robbery, the Sunday Times reported, quite wrongly, that the theft was to do with the supposedly controversial restoration policies at the gallery. Ten months after the first came another letter, this time delivered to the Exchange Telegraph news agency on July the 4th 1962 and headed Goya Com 3. It was postmarked from Lancaster, Morecambe, and its contents this time read as follows. The Duke is safe, his temperature cared for, his future uncertain. The painting is neither to be cloakroomed or kiosk, as such would defeat our purpose and leave us forever open to arrest. We want pardons or the right to leave the country, banishment. We ask that some non-conformist type of person with the sportitude of a butlin and the fearless fortitude of a Montgomery should start a fund for £140,000. No law can touch him. Also inside the envelope, further proof that the sender was indeed genuine. For there, tucked inside the neatly folded letter, a label from the back of the painting itself. Needless to say, no such conformist came forward, and the trail otherwise soon went very cold. <laughs> 
Public attention was again peaked three months later, thanks to the Duke's fleeting appearance in Doctor No. And throughout all of this time, the Daily Mirror continued to conduct a vigorous campaign for the return of the Goya. And in December 1962, the New Statesman ran a piece where Spike Milligan declared that he wished to contact the thieves. It read, He sympathises with them and would like to attempt to meet them with a view to raising money independently, to be donated to a charity of their choosing. This is a sincere offer and done without the connivance of the police or the authorities. It led to nothing, as did an offer from the Royal Academy that suggested that submission to the summer exhibition might be what it described as a discreet route for the painting's safe return. Fast forward now, 12 months to the end of the following year, December the 31st, 1963. The Beatles were at the top of the charts for the fourth time this year with I Wanna Hold Your Hand, soon to embark on their first conquering tour of the USA five weeks later. Another letter was delivered this time with the postmark NW1. This time, the demands were different, but slowly becoming more strange. This time, although still demanding the £140,000, it was evident that the thief was keen to return the painting, but wanted an amnesty from prosecution. There were also details of how the thief wanted to hand over the portrait, in the presence of press photographers no less, but he was to be wearing a hood in order to protect his anonymity. These demands were not met by the authorities, and things went very quiet. Very quiet for a further 15 months, in fact, and on March the 16th, 1965, a letter marked Final Com arrived at the offices of the Daily Mirror. This time, inside the envelope, not a demand, but a suggestion. Goyers Wellington is safe. I've looked upon this affair as an adventurous prank. Must the authorities refuse to see it this way? I know now that I am in the wrong, but I have gone too far to retreat. The thief stated that he would be willing to return the painting on the condition that it be exhibited privately for one month and that all proceeds from ticket sales of five shillings per person be paid to charity. There was one small demand, however, that he not be pursued and granted immunity from prosecution. The Daily Mirror enthusiastically took up the challenge of organising such an exhibition and suggested that this great national art treasure should be taken immediately to the shop of any newsagent in the land. Although neither the police nor the National Gallery could offer immunity from prosecution, the mirror became a communication route. Eight weeks after the final letter arrived, there was another, which this time did actually turn out to be the last. Inside the envelope, again postmarked Darlington, was a left luggage ticket from New Street Station in Birmingham. The police were alerted immediately, and on arrival at the station they were handed a brown paper parcel to which the left luggage ticket related to. Inside, rolled up, minus his frame, the Duke in very good condition. 
The painting was swiftly returned to London and a press conference was held on the 24th of May 1965, almost four years since its disappearance. Here, the Duke was proudly displayed to dozens of photographers and reporters, much to the relief of the director of the National Gallery. Kempton Cannon Bunton Sounds like someone from a Charles Dickens novel. Bunton was born in 1904, and in 1961, at the time of the robbery, he was a former bus driver who had retired early due to injury. Known for some of his eccentric ways and beliefs, he stood six feet tall and about 16 to 17 stone. And it was this very man who, on the 19th of July 1965, wearing a shabby, ill-fitting suit and a hat, stopped a policeman in central London and asked for directions to the West End police station on Savile Row. When he arrived, much to the bemusement of the officers present, he walked up to the front desk and declared to the desk sergeant, My name is Kempton Bunton, and I am turning myself in for the Goya. When Bunton was asked whether he was saying that he'd stolen it, he replied, Of course, that's why I'm here. He handed over a written statement that he'd brought with him. One, my secret has leaked. I wouldn't like a certain gentleman to benefit financially by speaking to the law. Two, I am sick and tired of the whole affair. Three, by surrendering in London, I avoid the stigma of being brought here in chains. He went on to explain that the picture frame had been thrown into the River Thames, although later he changed this part of the story and said that he'd left it sometime around the 21st of August 1961 in a cupboard under the stairs of a lodging house within three miles of King's Cross. Bunton said, It's not true that I threw the frame into the Thames. I said this because I didn't want to get the landlady into trouble. My sole object in all of this was to set up a charity to pay for television licences for old and poor people who seem to be neglected in our affluent society. Bunton was charged with the theft of the portrait and appeared at Bow Street Magistrates Court where he was further charged with stealing the picture frame. The significance of this will become apparent as our story unfolds. There was also a charge of demanding money with menaces from Lord Robbins, chairman of the National Gallery's Board of Trustees. Surely it would be a clear-cut case. Police had the stolen painting, as well as a suspect who had admitted in open court to having removed it without lawful authority, as well as demanding a ransom for its safe return. The trial didn't begin until nearly four months later, November the 4th, 1965, at the Central Criminal Court. Bunton was indicted on four counts. Two of theft, one for the portrait, one for the frame, contrary to the Larceny Act of 1916. There were two counts of demanding money with menaces and a delightfully obscure charge of causing a public nuisance by depriving members of the public the enjoyment of viewing the portrait contrary to common law. Bunton pleaded not guilty to each of the counts. Leading counsel for Bunton was none other than Jeremy Hutchinson. Hutchinson, a top criminal barrister, had been involved heavily in previous cases such as the Lady Chatley trial and the Profumo affair. The defence was simple, and yet at the same time very creative. The definition of theft at that time required that the defendant should take property belonging to another person with the intention of permanently depriving the owner of it. 
The contention put forward by Hutchinson was that Bunton couldn't possibly guilty of the offence of theft because he'd never intended to deprive the owner, the National Gallery, of the painting permanently. He'd merely intended to borrow the portrait in order to draw attention to what he considered to be the outrageous sum of £140,000 paid for it when so many old age pensioners couldn't even afford a TV licence. Hutchinson would recall later, the judge was absolutely furious when he came to realise what the defence was. The idea that Bunton would plead not guilty hadn't even occurred to him. And so the trial proper started with the painting, this time heavily guarded, being brought into the courtroom. Michael Levy, who was assistant keeper of the National Gallery, identified the portrait to the jury and then faced a bizarre set of questions from defence counsel Jeremy Hutchinson. For several minutes, Hutchinson questioned Levy as to the authenticity and true value of the painting. This was thanks in part to previous comments aired by Sir Gerald Kelly, the former president of the Royal Academy. Kelly had publicly described the painting as slick, incompetent and vulgar. Hutchinson used his opening line of questioning to not only Levy, but other esteemed witnesses, including Lord Robbins, the head trustee of the gallery, that there were many so-called experts out there who considered £140,000 an outrageous sum to pay for this particular portrait. In fact, at one point, referring to it as an old piece of canvas. The prosecution, of course, objected to this particular line of questioning as irrelevant, to which the judge agreed. But the damage had been done. Defence lawyer Jeremy Hutchinson had skillfully managed to plant the seed in the jury's heads that not only had the state paid the outrageous sum of £140,000 for a painting, money that could be of benefit to pensioners who were struggling to pay their TV licences, but there was also doubt that the painting was now actually really worth anything like that sum of money at all. The Crown's case began by focusing on the indictments relating to demanding money with menaces. There was reference to a letter written to Lord Robbins on May 20th 1963 in which an offer was made to return the portrait in return for £5,000. The letter suggested that Lord Rothermere of the Daily Mail should act as go-between in the proposed transaction. A further letter seeking guarantees of confidentiality and instructions on what was referred to as the payoff had also been sent to Lord Rothermere, demanding that he take the following course of action. Your photograph to appear one day in all editions of the Daily Mail and underneath the words, not necessarily the same but similar to the following, Lord Rothermere, visiting so-and-so place yesterday, commented upon the position of the two journalists in the Vassal Tribunal. He believes that newspaper men should, to some great extent, be entitled to treat a confidence as sacred. Personally, he went on, that has always been my motto, and always will be, excepting perhaps in such cases as rape, murder and other bestial crimes. Generally speaking, he continued, the successful men of this world are the men who, having given their word, stand by it. According to the Met Police's fingerprint team, this document was the only one of the letters with clear impressions on them, including what was claimed to be a clear thumbprint. The judge would later cast doubt on this evidence, and in any case, the letter incredibly went missing prior to Bunton's arrest. As the trial continued, the court heard the story of how and why Kenton Bunton decided to give himself up. A detective sergeant gave evidence stating that on Monday, July the 19th, 1965, 
Bunton arrived at the police station and declared that he was giving himself up for the Goya. Bunton would go on to say upon further questioning that he had decided on this course of action because he had carelessly revealed to someone that he had stolen the painting. Fearing that the £5,000 reward may still be on offer, he handed himself in before he could be shopped. Bunton would reveal that he kept the Goya in his room behind the wardrobe. His motive for the theft, well, as the letters indicated, he had been fined three times previously for not having a TV licence. And furious that the government would not provide a scheme for free licences for the elderly, he hatched his ransom plan. And as for the accusation that he demanded money with menaces, Bunton denied drafting either of the letters. That, in effect, completed the case for the Crown. And so, it was the turn of the Defence Council. Kempton Bunton told the court how, in 1960, he had contacted the post office with regard to his TV licence, informing them that he had adjusted his TV set to only view programmes broadcast by ITV. Refusing to pay court fines, by default he served three short prison terms, 13 days, 56 days and one day respectively. This in turn led to him coming up with the master plan to steal the Goya. But this is where the Defence Council really ramped things up. They claim that Bunton never actually stole the painting. He'd merely borrowed it. He had never suggested in any of his letters that the portrait would not be returned. Bunton explained that when he'd read about the excessive price paid for the portrait, he considered that the £140,000 could be better spent in buying TV licences for old age pensioners. On coming to London, he said, he had the idea of taking the picture from the National Gallery. On arriving, I had a very bad dose of flu, and the whole thing was rather hazy, but I had a job to do, and I did it. He went on to say that once he returned home, he placed the Duke in a cupboard in his bedroom, but daren't tell the wife because the world would have known if I'd have done so. He was adamant that his intention was to return the portrait, and that he never wanted any money for himself. It was no good to me otherwise. I couldn't even have hung it in my kitchen. And it was through comments like that that Bunton began to endear himself even further to the jury. Encouraged by the seemingly positive reaction from the jury, Jeremy Hutchinson continued by launching an attack on the prosecution. The authorities, he suggested, were desperate to get the man who removed the £140,000 Goya portrait convicted of something. Maybe those concerned were irked that the wrong charges had been framed. But nothing in this country is a crime unless it's expressly forbidden by law, however inconvenient and unfortunate that might be. Certainly, it's not a crime in law to remove a picture from an art gallery, provided there is no intention to keep it permanently, you may think, Jeremy told the jury. The law is stupid about this. If someone goes into your house and takes your television set because he wants to watch a football match and then keeps it, it's extremely irritating and annoying. But it's not stealing. It's not stealing if you take your neighbour's lawnmower and forget all about it. If at the time the television set or the lawnmower was taken there was no intention of keeping it permanently, you may have caused annoyance and intense irritation. But it's not theft. Eventually, as the questioning and cross-examinations finished, the jury acquitted Kempton Bunton of all charges. All of them, except for the theft of the picture frame. 
Bunton's story now being that he left the frame in a boarding house near King's Cross about four years earlier. The frame was valued at £100, leaving the judge with no option but to sentence Bunton to three months' imprisonment. The judge was clearly irritated by the leniency of the jury and made no secret of this during his sentencing remarks. The jury have accepted that at the material time you intended to return this picture and they have accepted that you made no demands for money with menaces for yourself or for charity as such. I, of course, accept the jury's verdict on these matters, but motives, even if they are good, cannot justify creeping into art galleries in order to extract paintings of value so that you can use them for your own purposes. This has got to be discouraged. Bunton himself, after sentence was passed, merely declared, I have nothing further to say, before being led away to the cells. And that, you would think, was the end of the matter. But no, there are three postscripts to this intriguing tale. Number one, in 1967, the National Gallery published its biannual account of his activities. In it, of course, were details relating to the theft and the fact that it was appalled at the outcome of the trial. It read, To most of the world it was a shock to read that it is not against the English law to climb into a public gallery at the dead of night, remove a national treasure, keep it hidden for several years and meanwhile attempt to extort ransom money for the public for whom it had just been acquired. Bunton's trial has had the unfortunate result of informing the world that deeds like his can be performed in England with impunity, provided the perpetrator is more careful about details than Bunton was over the frame. The response was a swiftly introduced change in the law. The Theft Act 1968 contained a new provision at section 11. Where the public have access to a building in order to view the building or part of it, or a collection or part of a collection housed in it, any person who without lawful authority removes from the building or its grounds the whole or part of any article displayed or kept for display to the public in the building or that part of it or in its grounds shall be guilty of an offence. Postscript number two. Kempton Bunton's desire to see free TV licences for the elderly did come about, although this was not until the year 2000 and only for those over 75. And finally, the most bizarre ending to a most bizarre tale. Although Kempton Bunton had confessed to the crime, the police had always found the story hard to believe, and their suspicions were eventually confirmed as soon as early 1966, not long after Kempton Bunton had finished his prison sentence. It was about this time that reports circulated that Bunton's son, John, sent out letters to the press inviting sealed bids for the story along with the movie rights. The letters also contained a teasing piece of information where John Bunton had written that the defence advisers knew as little about the truth as you do. It's still not clear if any of the newspapers took up the offer and of course no movie was ever made about the affair but then three years later in 1969 again there were rumblings that a man from Leeds had apparently taken responsibility for the theft. Fast forward to 2012. The National Archives in the UK released a confidential file from the Director of Public Prosecutions dating from 1969, in which it appeared that the man from Leeds was none other than Bunton's son John, who had in fact confessed to the crime 
and stole the painting in exactly the same way in which his father had described. Detective Inspector George Chandler, who had led the investigation into the theft, wrote in his 1969 report to the Department of Public Prosecutions, At the time of the offence, Kempton was 57 years old. He is a tall, heavily built man who now weighs somewhere in the region of 18 stone, and it is extremely unlikely that he would have had the agility to scale the outer wall and make his way unaided to the toilet window. He would also, in my view, been incapable of returning to the wall and climbing over it without causing some damage to the painting, whereas his son John, who at that time was only 20 years of age, is still of good physique and would have been quite capable of taking the painting in the manner in which he describes. In fact, at the trial itself, the judge pronounced that it was a remarkable feat for the 17-stone Bunton who had retired from driving because of injury. But despite all of this, the authorities decided not to take the matter any further, perhaps still reeling from the result of the first trial. Today, the Duke remains where he should have been nearly 60 years ago. Gallery A in the National Gallery, alongside works by Canaletto, Hogarth and Sir Joshua Reynolds. To many of us, art theft is something of a romantic notion. Initially, we imagine Raffles-type characters or international criminal masterminds such as Dr. No to be behind such thefts. What the Goya case showed the world was that there are huge differences between perception and reality. Criminals come in all shapes and sizes from a whole manner of different backgrounds. And as for John Bunton, Kempton Bunton's son, when you break it down, I think it would be quite safe to say that he got away with one of the 20th century's greatest art thefts. It was the year the Beatles conquered America, leading the way for the British invasion. Elizabeth Taylor married Richard Burton for the first time. The Mods and the Rockers clashed in pitched battles at numerous British seaside resorts, and Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston for the world heavyweight title. With music from The Searchers, Scylla Black and the Dave Clark Five, join me next time as I present the hits and the headlines from 1964. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast. Or send us your thoughts and your feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Pause production. (laughs) 